Okay, welcome to the Queen Anne's County Commissioner's Meeting. This is a public meeting that is being aired live on our local cable television station, QAC-TV7. These media broadcasts provide county citizens an opportunity to watch and review our public sessions. To comply with the governor's proclamation declaring a state of emergency in Maryland to minimize the person-to-person -person spread of COVID-19, we suggest that citizens stay home and watch the county commissioner's meeting live on our QAC website at www.qac.org live or on QAC TV's television channel, Atlantic Broadband Channel 7 and Channel 507 for high definition. To maintain social distancing, seating will be limited to accommodate social distancing guidelines. We are screening all meeting participants prior to entering the building. If you have any respiratory symptoms such as fever, cough, and or shortness of breath, please refrain from attending this meeting and notify a health care provider. We acknowledge your participation and by attending, you acknowledge that this session is both recorded and, recorded and aired. The scheduled agenda is available on the information table just outside of our meeting room. Press and public comment will be taken and is limited to three minutes per person. If you care to speak, you must sign the sheet on the information table outside. Comments longer than three minutes can be submitted in writing for the commissioner's review. Citizens may also join the live Zoom meeting by going to www.qac.org slash public comment, or you may email comments to public comment at qac.org. We will accept comments up until the end of the meeting. Comments received will be read during the press and public comment period on this evening's agenda. During the meeting, we would ask that you turn off all electronic devices and hold personal conversations outside of our meeting room. We will now stand and be led in the Pledge of Allegiance by Commission President Chris Corcorino. <coughs> Pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The moment of silence for the passing of former Secretary of State George Schultz at the age of 100. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, commissioners, we just uh, we had a closed session under section 3305B3 of the general provisions article to consult with council and uh, no decisions were made in our executive session this evening. That brings us to the uh, approval of tonight's agenda. Today's agenda for a meeting February 9th and a regular and closed session meeting minutes from your January 26th meeting along with the roads board meeting minutes from January 12th were distributed electronically for review. Do we have any additions or corrections? Motion to add action item number nine to the agenda. Okay, we have desk item number nine. Got a motion to the second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right. Motion to approve the agenda and minutes as amended. As amended. Second. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, motion carries. All right. That brings us to our first press and public comment period. Thank you for taking the time to express your views to the county commissioners during this public comment period. Comments are limited to three minutes in length. Comments longer than three minutes should be submitted in writing. When you come forward, please speak clearly at the standing microphone or the seated microphone. Uh, state your name, address, and topic of interest. Keeping with the dignity of the office, we ask that all views be expressed in a respectful and civil manner. This commission respects your desire and right to convey your message freely, and we ask as a courtesy of the board and our citizens that you respect the commissioner's request and refrain from naming citizens and name calling when offering any critique. So. All right, we have uh, Karen Spinolo. 
Is she on the hallway? Ms. Spinola, you out there? There we go. Come on in. Hello, my name is Karen Spignolo. I'm a Queen Anne's uh, County resident. My address is 224 Lason Teal Court, L-A-Y-S-A-N, separate word Teal, T-E-A-L Court, Churchill, Maryland, 21623. Ms. Karen, if you'd like, you can, while you're staying there, you can remove your, uh, you um, so your mask. There you go. Um, I'd like, do I then announce what I'd like to discuss, which is the COVID-19 uh, pyramid, also the website um, waitlist form, and uh, the vaccination rollout. Okay. I also have um, handouts for each of you, uh, seven of them. Would you like to disperse yeah. them? Or? Yeah, the clerk there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
I am a 63-year-old woman, less than two years younger than the quote-unquote most vulnerable, competing with a 16-year-old to get vaccinated, much less the entire population of the state of Maryland, once this tier is opened. I think it has been statistically proven that, barring isolated incidences, the older ones are more likely they would be adversely affected contracting this virus, even to the point of being hospitalized, ventilator dependency, and death versus someone even in their 40s or 30s, much less teens. Why not further delineate the pyramid into 10-year increments, i.e. 55 to 64-year-olds, 45 to 54-year-olds, etc.? By doing so, you could more efficiently and with greater success prevent unnecessary deaths of those proven to get sicker and die. It is true that, is it true that, excuse me, as I was informed by a credible government source, these demographic levels weren't even possible to create because, and I quote, the state database has not had the necessary filter tools established to make using it possible. If this is true, why is the state requesting your birth date if they cannot even use it to determine when you are age-wise on the pyramid, much less email or call you from this wait list when you would be eligible age-wise to be vaccinated? How are they determining that who they are allowing to receive the vaccine in the upper open tier <coughs> tiers is actually the age that they have indicated? Are you required to prove your age and or comorbidity status, i.e. a doctor's note to corroborate your eligibility when you arrive to be vaccinated? This also begs the question regarding the box on the website waitlist form in which you are able to indicate comorbidity, such as typing in diabetes, COPD, etc. Is there someone actually looking at the tens of thousands of entries individually to determine who meets these criteria? As this, since, since this data isn't flagged, i.e., one for diabetes, two for COPD, <coughs> what have you, how is this information extricated from the website to reach these higher risk individuals? Given the above, how can and why should Marylanders trust the only avenue they have to be contacted when eligible to receive this potentially life saving <coughs> vaccine in a timely manner? A, uh, perhaps as a direct result of the above, I would like to apprise you of a number of anecdotal issues I have direct knowledge of and uh, can uh, document if necessary. A police department's employees in Maryland were sent a text with a confidential link to sign up for their first vaccine. They were told not to share this link with anyone. Human nature, what it is, and the desire to be vaccinated, however possible, it was shared. Did the health department prevent ineligible recipients from receiving the vaccine? I happen to unfortunately know the answer to that. An eligible 75-year-old woman signed up on the website to be vaccinated. Then over the next day or so, she learned other eligible friends to do the same. Of the four women who signed up, those that signed up later than she did received calls and she did not. The website states you will be contacted according to the date slash time stamp of your website entry once you're eligible age-wise. How is this scenario possible? If she had not called the Queen Anne's County Health Department because she was aware her friends were contacted ahead of her and then requested an appointment while on the phone, when would she have finally been contacted? 
Well, I have a few more examples and then I'll close. One eligible 74-year-old male who signed up as directed on the website and has a pig valve in his heart was told he had 14,000 people ahead of him on the wait list and to just, quote, wait until he was called. Uh, and it could be months. Yet another 76-year-old male was able to get through to the Queen Anne's County Health Department and was given an appointment not only over the phone for himself, but also for his 70-year-old spouse and an older relative who had all signed up on the website but were never called by Queen Anne's County Health Department. They just happened to be able to get through and were scheduled. How is this fair and equitable? Again, why should anyone privy to these scenarios not attempt an end run around the system themselves, while the rest of us dutifully wait like sequestered sitting ducks. For what it is worth, you cannot even get an answer as to where you are on the list, how many people are ahead of you, much less in your age group, or what tier you are even in, two, three, never mind a time frame, other than several months as to when you might expect to be contacted to be vaccinated. In closing, I would hope you would concur that as Maryland attempts to roll out this vaccination process with all the best intentions, at the very least, these basic issues should be transparently addressed, perhaps by Governor Hogan himself, if he expects Marylanders to follow his edicts. In closing, I am requesting that the Queen Anne's County Commissioners please advocate for the residents of Queen Anne's County by investigating and reporting back to us your findings regarding the above. I've included my cell number to be notified when this presentation will be forthcoming. And I thank you very much for extending my time. Thank you. Bruce, do we have anybody online? No virtual comment at this right. time. We'll close press and public comment. Excuse me, Commissioners. Mm -hmm. Would you mind if we did the proclamation next? Sure. Because I actually called him in early, so I could ask him to come. Absolutely. Ask him to come in or Sure. Phil. Who gets All right, Commissioners, we do have a, uh, a proclamation Rejected. this evening, and that is on your desk. We have uh, character counts, Kelly Huber and Joan Brooks. This is a proclamation for respect and Black History Month. Welcome. Good evening. Good evening. So just real quick, although I was here two weeks ago, thank you for allowing us to be here again tonight. Um, Tonight, it's not with a program update or anything. It is, I'm joined here with Joan Brooks, um, recreation specialist at the Queen Anne's- Manager. Ca Manager, I'm sorry. <laughs> at the Queen Anne's um, County Department of um, Parks and Rec. Recreation. I'm pretty sure she's earned that title. Yes, she has. <laughs> um, so she is here. She wrote a character counts proclamation for February in celebration of both respect and Black History Month. Do you want to say anything? No. <laughs> Come on. No, I'm good. So I have the honor to read that proclamation. It's a wonderful one. It's great. And of course, had you had the choice to pick out of the five, you would have selected me. <laughs> we'll go uh, with that. We'll see about that. <laughs> so proclamation 21-09, whereas the Queen Anne's County was declared a character counts community, and all the citizens have been called upon to embrace the six pillars of character and incorporate the model them in their daily activities. And whereas February is Black History Month, we celebrate and respect 
the many achievements and contributions made by African Americans to our economic, cultural, and political development. And whereas African Americans have enhanced and advanced every aspect of American life through bravery, perseverance, faith, and resolve, often in the face of incredible pre prejudice and hardship. And whereas during Black History Month, we honor the extraordinary contributions made by Lucretia Kennard, the first African-American appointed as supervisor of schools, Marcella Bordley, the first African-American teacher of the year, Warren Butler, the first African-American elected to Queen Anne's County School Board and also served as the first African-American board president, and Joseph Butler, the first African-American law enforcement officer in Queen Anne's County. And whereas their fight for uh, equality, representation, and respect motivates us all to continue working for a more promising, peaceful, and hopeful, hopefully future, hopeful future for all citizens. And whereas Queen Anne's County is strengthened and enriched by the citizens of every race, religion, and color, and creed, and rejects any discrimination through its values, policies, and practices. And whereas Queen Anne's County has made diversity, equity, and inclusion a priority and supports the continued work to raise awareness and promote inclusive communities, uh, environment free from discrimination. And whereas this month, as we celebrate Black History Month, may all citizens remember to practice these important values of respect, regardless of color, of one's skin, and always follow the golden rule of respect. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. Now, therefore, we, the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, do here proclaim February as Black History Month in Queen Anne's County and hereby declare this proclamation to celebrate African-American communities as the affirmation of the county to protect and serve everyone who resides in, works in, or visits Queen Anne's County without discrimination and or its belief in the dignity, equity, and civil rights of all people and proclaim the character counts pillar of the month to be respect. Signed by all county commissioners. That well done. Thank you. Wonderful. <laughs> who helped you write this? Come on, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Should have never read that. <laughs> you had your choice. I did not. There was five, four other ones. <laughs> we'll flip a coin next Thank time and have somebody else do it. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much. <laughs> Fills the face. All right, Commissioners, if you want to go to our uh, new business this evening, tab three, we have a few items here to cover. We've got a little bit of time here before our next presenter. So if you go to tab three, item one, page one, first we have a forest conservation amended deed of forest conservation easement. And this is an amended deed of forest conservation easement for the legal property up on 301, tax map 37, parcel 80. There was a violation up there where he cleared some trees and now he is reserving some additional acreage. Motion, please. I move to approve and sign the amended deed of forest conservation easement, placing 5.22 acres of existing mature priority forest into a long-term protection agreement. Second. Okay, we've got a motion to second. Any discussion? All those in favor? Aye. 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 Five zero. All right, thank you, commissioners. Item number two on page seven. This is the semi-annual progress report for the Mattapique Industrial Park uh, we have a grant down there for job creation. Could I get a motion on that, please? 
I move, I move to approve and sign the semi-annual progress report as presented for the Community Development Block Grant Number MD-11-ED-70 regarding Mattapique Industrial Park, which covers the time period of July 1, 2020 through December 31st of 2020. Second. You got a motion? Second. Any discussion? All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? 5-0. Okay. Thank you, Commissioners. I'll also note that we are going to be meeting with uh, the Department of Housing and Community Development uh, next week and seeing if we can extend this a little bit further because of the COVID restrictions and some of the jobs that have not quite come to fruition yet so we can maybe uh, get a few more years out of this. Uh, <laughs> It'll be uh, a world record. Yeah. That's right. So <laughs> more to come on that one. Thank you. Item number three on page 11, and this is for the Maryland Agricultural Land Preservation Fund. Um, as you recall, last week we uh, had a motion to designate 84,000 of the ag transfer tax to the mouth matching funds program. Uh, there is one pending assessment in the amount of $122,888 that is expected to settle this fiscal year. So we have a budget amendment for that, which follows this action item. Uh, therefore, as a result, there is only $58,947 remaining in the transfer tax account between personal property for solar and ag tra transfer tax. So we have to amend that motion. And I believe there was some discussion about adding a little bit more to um, that account this year. So uh, there was discussion about maybe going up to as high as 300000 So if we want to do that, there is a motion here that would allow that to occur. Okay, I move to submit to the Maryland Agricultural Land Preservation Foundation, MOUTH, the letter of commitment in the amount of $300,000. The funding of this commitment will derive from the Ag Transfer Tax Fund balance in the amount of $49,423, personal property tax in the amount of $9,524, and the remaining $241,053 from the general fund. Second. All right, we got a motion to second. Discussion? Yeah, I, I just, just to bring the public up to speed on this, I mean, the last meeting we voted on this only to find out that the money that was set there had been spent on previous mouth uh, purchases. And the reason that is, is because they overlap. Uh, when we have to send this letter in uh, for our commitment, it's we're committing to 2022, not 2021. So, you know, uh, you know, this money, this money that we're committing now won't get spent until FY23, right? 22. Next 22. FY22, 22. okay, Next right. So, mm -hmm. so what we're trying to do is, and what we set in place was the solar uh, personal property tax to fund this. So this year, we, we're basically not using that because that fund has been spent last year's mouth purchases. So we are taking a breather from it. We're using general surplus, basically, funding to get us to 300, which will allow us to catch back up to our personal property so that this time next year we will be quoting that personal property on solar. Does that sound right? Does that sound right, Brittany? Clear as mud. Yes. yes. <laughs> the question arising then, does the solar pay back the general fund for this advanced money? Not, not at this present time. So when we get up over a million, we'll say we'll pay this back. But no. Why not? Why not? Well, because then we'll be back in the same boat we'll be in next year. Because ne next year, it looks like the solar is only going to produce about 200,000. Until some of these other ones that have been permitted build, the numbers are going to stay in somewhere between two and $300,000. So as soon as we get two more of these built, I think we'll, we will be able to handle that and some. 
Well, it's true. I mean, honestly, the, the Jones Farm uh, not building was kind of, that was a blow to the whole thing because that was almost 80 megawatt. That would have generated almost 400,000 by itself. Right. So. And I think there's another one. That's going to come around. I mean, the and there's another one I believe is getting ready to be building. permitted. So, yeah. And the other one's already permitted, the, right. the, the North County one. So right. that one will be built within a year. And that one will generate about 300,000. So. Mm -hmm. It'll be about a million when they all build out. Yep. And the, and the best guess time frame on that? Yeah. Well, with energy costs going up, they're probably going to build the Jones Farm sooner than later. Yeah. Yeah. So three years from now, we could be. Well, the, the other one's going to be built in a year. Yeah. Yeah. The big but one in Churchill. Uh, probably three years from now, we'll be close to. A million? A million. Uh, yeah. You know, between about 900,000. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be up there. Stick my neck in on that. Yep. Okay. Mr. Wilson, does that make you feel better? Knowing in the next two years we could be there? He looks like he feels better. <laughs> that <Yeah>. was painful. <laughs> we got to preserve that farmland, Stevie. That's right. All right, any more discussion? All right, so we have a motion to submit to the Maryland Agriculture Land Preservation Foundation, MALF, the letter of commitment in the amount of 300000 And the funding of this commitment will derive from the Ag Transfer Tax Fund balance in the amount of $49,423 of uh, personal property tax in the amount of $9,524 and remaining $241,053 from the general fund. We have a motion and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? By zero. And we can just go right into the next one, which is I'll make a motion to approve budget amendment CC-26. Second. All right. And discussion? All those in favor? Aye. 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 All right. Thank you, five commissioners. Vote. All right. Moving on to item number five on page 15. And this is a memorandum from our health officer, Dr. Ciatola, requesting approval for some um, the renewal and enhancement of the software image trend, and this is for the MIC program for patient records. Can I get a motion on that, please? I move to approve the renewal and enhancements of maintenance and support for image trend software in the amount of $26,325. Second. All right. Phil's got the second. Got a motion to second. Any discussion? All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? 5-0. All right, thank you, commissioners. Item number six on page 16. This is a letter from the Salisbury University. It's a grant match request. This is a, from their Small Business Development Center at Salisbury in conjunction with Chesapeake College for a, a local match in the amount of $6,000. And this is, this is an operating grant. And uh, we did give money to these to these folks back in 2010. So we can consider this now or we can put this forth as a um, outside agency request as part of the budget. So I think that was what they had originally intended this to be. But here, if you want to take action this evening, that's, that's fine too. So. Well, unless anybody has a burning desire, I think we should just defer to the outside agencies. So table it to that. Anybody? Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right, commissioners, uh, that takes care of number six. Item number seven, this is a request from uh, the Board of Education, Dr. Kane, for approval to transfer uh, funds between, uh, major, between major state categories for the period of December 1st to December 31st. So they're listed there. 
Can I get a motion on that, please? I move to approve the Board of Education request to transfer between major state categories for the period of 1 December 2020 and December 31st, 2020. Second. Got a motion to second. Any discussion? All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Zero. All right, thank you, Commissioners. Item number eight on page 18, and this is a request from the Midshore Behavioral Health Executive Director, Catherine Dilley, to uh, appoint Megan Pinder of Centerville, Maryland, for a three-year term to their board from July 1st, 2020 through June 30th, 2023. You know, the letter states that they need two, and they're asking for two, but they only request, they only have one. You're absolutely Two appointed correct. representatives from each county with two three-year terms, but they only have, I guess. I guess this is the only person they have ready for, and I can follow up with uh, Ms. Dilley and see what. Yeah, they have if you don't mind, just sure. I'll make the motion. I move to appoint Megan Pinder to the Regional Behavioral Health Advisory Committee for a term that began July 1, 2020 and to expire June 30th, 2023. Second. Okay, got a motion to second. Any discussion? Uh, are, you, are you sure these aren't staggered terms, Jim, and they're just only filling one of them? Could be. I don't know. It just it doesn't state it that way, but it just, yeah. they only show one. So. Yeah, I'm just reading the statute says there has to be two, but maybe there's somebody already in that's right. on staggered terms between the counties or something. Okay. But Todd will find out. We will find out. <laughs> All right. Any other discussion? All right. So the motion is to appoint Megan Pender to the Regional Behavior Behavioral Health Advisory Committee for a term that begins on July 1, 2020, and to expire on June 30th, 2023. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? 5-0 passes. Okay, thank you, commissioners. Our last item is our desk item number nine, and this is a letter of support for the Queen Anne's Hillsborough Volunteer Fire Company for a grant they are seeking for some self-contained breathing apparatus. Motion to sign a letter of support. Second. Any discussion? All those in favor? Aye. 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 <clears throat> Five -0. All right, commissioners, we are right back on schedule. It is uh, 6.15. I believe Mr. Allen Quimby's here. We have a uh, water and sewer uh, master plan amendment informational hearing or meeting. And if you want to turn to um, tab number two for those materials, there are two projects that we will re review tonight, and then we'll have a hearing in two weeks. So, Allen? Commissioners. Good evening. <clears throat> we have two applicants for this amendment 1116. Uh, the first applicant is the contract purchaser of the Copec properties, which are located in between the Winchester subdivision and Chester, Reach, Chester River Beach subdivision. This property was amended in 2007, but the commissioners at that time placed five conditions on the amendment. The current applicant wishes to remove those five conditions. Uh, Mr. Waterman is, is the uh, contract purchaser, he's here if you have any questions of him, as well as his agent, Tom Davis. Uh, Alan, does any of this ever have to go in front of the Planning Commission? No. Just because it's there a are minor? two minors. So it's a, but before it was it a minor also? No. So were, were these these uh, five restrictions put on there in front of the Planning Commission? I never got that far. Okay, so I never got there. Okay. There's two parcels currently in, in, in minor subdivision these days is, subdiv is defined as, I'm sorry, commissioners, 
seven lots, so that's where the 14 comes from. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have this trouble if I didn't have to wear a tie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can loosen it up. We need to absolve him from having to wear that, just because of his title alone. <laughs> hmm. Who's who's uh, who's speaking for this, Clary? Come on up. Explain explain what you're trying to do here and, and why you're trying to do it. And I think you get a better understanding of this. Uh, what I'm passing out is an aerial um, on one side. And on the other side is is the plan, and I can pretty quickly explain why the conditions that were put on in the past can't be can't be worked with now. Uh, Michael Foster was the original developer of that subdivision that Loblolly Way was built for. And he, he still owns this little blue triangle on your aerial. So he owns half of the road frontage there. Um, this, the southern portion of the road frontage there is mostly underwater most of the time. So it's clearly non-tidal wetland. If you look on the opposite side, so Michael Foster developed Winchester, where, which is Loblolly Way. He was going to do lots two through eight that you see on the opposite side there, which was just going to be an extension of the Winchester subdivision, therefore subjecting it to the same restrictions as Winchester, um, putting in street lights like the rest of the community, all made sense. The dilemma is that the little area in yellow that you see, that's called a spike strip there, um, he owned that, so he could do this subdivision. If, if, I, if those restrictions stay in place, even if I could do those lots exactly as he had originally planned, only one of them is, is, has access to that road that, that is on the property that I'm trying to purchase. So I simply can't do the subdivision that he did. Uh, beyond <laughs> that, the definition of non-tidal wetlands has changed pretty substantially since 2006 when this subdivision was proposed. And I believe that substantially more of this property is wetlands than was wetlands at that time. So our thought is that if we can get two minor subdivisions, they're going to look like this other area, which is the dry area of um, this property. Originally in the Chester River Beach subdivision, Loblolly Way, which was called Queen Anne Drive at the time came through and connected to Chester River Beach Road. And that is this little strip that comes mm -hmm. up here. Um, so there is, this property has um, a 50 foot right or 50 foot property, which is the old roadbed all the way out to Chester River Beach. So, so whether we come in from that road or whether we connect it through to Loblolly really depends on what the wetland delineation reveals. And if you guys are unwilling to remove those restrictions, then we probably would just pull the plug and not, and not move forward with the wetland delineation because delineating 18 acres of ground that's pretty wet is, is going to be somewhat uh, both expensive and time consuming. So um, we, can't, we can't do what Michael Foster had planned to do. Uh, I have no problem that, uh, with the restriction that if we do create any lots at all that front on Loblolly Way that they should be subject to the same restrictions that Winchester has now. So same size house, same type of lots. I don't have any problem with that. I just don't think we're going to have any lots there. So then I, I guess it, the, 
The exercise is hopefully to get the lots on the other side? To get the lots into the area where it's dry. Right. So, you, so in, in, right now you're looking at 10 lots there and you're looking at uh, one, two, three, four, five, seven when, lots. So 17 total lots, but you're saying because of the, the wetlands, you're going to lose probably six of those? Well, it's actually worse than that. Under the, this, is, this is one of the few properties that zoned uh, planned residential in Graysonville. So the zoning on this property would allow between 50 and 60 lots. Um, it's 3.5 to the acre. So what we're saying is that we don't think there's any chance that we would be able to or even would want to do that many lots. So we're going to do the same thing that Michael Foster did. Michael Foster originally proposed this as two minor subdivisions, which in 2006, a minor subdivision was five total lots. So he had eight new lots and two residual lots. We're talking about two minor subdivisions on the parcels that we have. So they would be seven lots is now the definition of a minor subdivision. So the most we're asking for is to be able to do two minor subdivisions, seven total lots. So that. Seven total each. Seven total on each. Total. So fourteen total lots, which would uh, would be the residual parcels on each one. So in theory, twelve new lots mm -hmm. would be the most that we that, that we think we might be able to get. And I and again, I don't know that we can get those. I just I believe we can. But uh, all I've done so far is walk the property with the wetland consultant to get a, a, a handle on what's dry and what's not. And, um, and Tommy Davis, who's here to answer any technical questions, has put a sketch together of lots that are as um, bigger than Chester River Beach and closer to the size of the lots in, uh, uh, in Winchester. Um, um, question, uh, on what you're planning on building there, are they going to be consistent with the homes that are already existing on Loblolly? Are they going to be two-story colonials? <clears throat> I would expect that to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, but again, until we know how the lots are going to be configured, I don't have an answer for you. But I would anticipate they would be closer to that than closer to the, the older homes in Chester River Beach. All the new homes in Chester River Beach are very similar to Loblolly, and I would envision that, that that's what the market would, would demand in that area are nice-looking houses of you know somewhere around 2,000 square feet like all the other ones are. Okay. I guess what happens next is a, a hearing. Two weeks. Yes, Two weeks sir. as a hearing, so, okay. Any questions? No, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. No questions? Thank you. Thank you. Fisher mm -hmm. is the second and last uh, applicant. It's actually the town of Barclay. Patrick Thomas is the town's attorney, um, which is confusing to me. Patrick Thompson is their county attorney. Yes, I know we get mixed up from time to time. <laughs> this, uh, the town of Barclay has annexed four parcels into their town limits, but it has yet to be um, included in their sewer service area, so that's the purpose of this amendment. Is that on here? I'm sorry, where are we? What town? <laughs> Oh, this is uh, tab, tab number two, two. Oh. DPW, tab two, there is page a five. Uh, informational piece there, tab two, page one, and you're looking on, pa uh, actually page number five shows a, a uh, sewer service area map of the town of Barclay. So perhaps, Patrick, you can walk them through the properties you're talking about annexing in, please. Uh, yes, so in 2015, the... Um, 
the, the comprehensive water and sewer plan <coughs> was amended to include uh, several properties in the town of Barclay, certain annexed, recently annexed properties which were upgraded from S6 to S2 and then the rest of the properties that were already in the town from uh, S3 to S2 because of the pending construction of the sewer system from Southersville to Barclay. Um, when that was when that amendment was granted, there was a condition that four of the properties had to be included in the town's comprehensive plan, the municipal growth element. Uh, and, and then in 2016, the commissioners of Barclay adopted a resolution including those properties in, as required. Um, they also included certain other properties uh, as future growth areas for the town. Um, and these prop some of these properties were annexed in, as some of you may recall, um, in 2019. Um, pursuant to annexation resolution 2019-01, um, and those are tax map 18, parcel 24, tax map 18, parcel 57, t tax map 24, parcel 155, tax map 24, parcel 52, and a portion of a railroad right-of-way owned by the state. Um, portions of these properties were actually already located within the corporate limits of the town, so they were actually half in the town and half in the county. Um, when the town sent the uh, proposed annexation to the county and to the Maryland Department of Planning, um, Maryland Department of Planning was generally favor, in favor of it, but they said that they weren't eligible for PFA because they weren't, sh they weren't um, shown on the county water and sewer plan as being eligible for sewer service. And when the county commissioners uh, gave a favorable recommendation, they said, after, you know, one of the conditions is you need to come back and uh, have the sewer plan amended to include these properties. So the annexation has since been complete and now we're coming back to get those properties added to the water and sewer plan. Okay. We have any questions? Nope. So in my defense, they were, pardon me? In my defense, these were stapled together. I, and two different subject matters attached. Gotcha. All right. That's good. That's it? That's it. Any other questions? Good. No? Good. Questions. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you very much. <laughs> Commissioners, um, next on our agenda, we have the uh, presentation from the Spending Affordability Committee, their recommendations. And we have uh, Brittany Moran, our budget analyst. We also have two members of our committee here with us this evening, uh, Linda Kohler and Robert Sadusky. And I believe uh, Joe Zimmerman may be zooming in to the meeting this evening as well. We haven't had him joined yet. Haven't joined yet? Okay, well, he was going to try to connect this evening, but uh, we will let Brittany take it away here and uh, with our committee. And we're looking at uh, tab six, item one. We also have it up on the screen here as well. Hey, Brittany. Okay, hello. Well, first I wanna start with um, the presentation was kind of put together um, the same time the report was put together, which I'm sure as all of you know, the financial status has changed a lot since even September. So some of the recommendations that you see or the guidelines that they were basing their recommendations off of are not, um, I wouldn't say relevant, they're still relevant, but they've been updated. So some numbers that you'll see may have changed. 
Um, their recommendations haven't changed unless they choose to make any input. But as far as we know, I just wanted you to be able to see what they were looking at when they made their recommendations. So like they, had, they do every year, we started um, our meeting just discussing the current year budget, the upcoming budget, and the status of the economy the way it is, and then also um, debt measures and policies, um, the forecasted revenue and expenditures, and the fund balance of the county. Here are the budget guidelines, and these were also sent out to the departments during the um, beginning of the budget process as a just a guideline of this is what we're predicting, this is what we're hoping for, and kind of base your your asks off of this. Um, so we'll start with revenue. Um, so you'll see in here, this is kind of the portion that needs a little bit of tweaking based on the changes in the economy. Um, as more information comes in, as well as um, the state coming up with different revenue estimates and just um, pending litig litigation and a variety of moving parts, especially for income tax. So that being said, um, we had originally said that revenues would be projected um, an increase from FY22, I mean from FY21 to 22, based on our approved budget that we all know was cut substantially. Um, so that was about 3.5%, and then we kind of shifted our thinking and um, a larger growth than that. Keep in mind now with all this pending litigation that that may not hold true. So it's a moving target. Um, other than that, we see growth, but slow growth. Um, income tax, not necessarily, um, depending on which day you ask and which legislation you're discussing. <laughs> Um, so that's always an animal to tackle. Um, for expenditures, um, we just said to keep in mind that the um, Board of Education, um, MOE, something we'll have to keep out, you know, an eye out for, not knowing what's going to happen, it's kind of pending as well. Um, and so it's along the same lines of that is the Kerwin impacts and how that's going to affect our upcoming budget. Um, and then included are any increases in salary compensation and benefits and um, OPEB, um, fringe benefits and all the information you receive from the actuaries and um, then the last note being that the rainy day fund that will still maintain the 8% of budgeted revenues. Capital, we have a projected bond sale of 12.6 million for FY21 coming up. And then we are forecasting about a $14.3 million bond sale for FY22. Um, that being said, the committee also discussed um, capital fund balance and using what is available and as also pay go um, in order to minimize our county debt, which is ideal. And then you will see in your book and on the screen, these are the debt measures and how we come up with these ratios are just with our existing bond debt and then well as what we're forecasting through 2027 for expected bonds. Um, then using those numbers, we came up with our three policies, our debt policies that the county has. Um, you'll see the first one is debt as a percentage of accessible base. 
and that must be with 2.5% um, or less of tax exempt base. And for FY21, we're currently sitting at 1.6%, and the highest in the out years through FY26 is 1.66%. So still within our means and our limits. The next step measure is per capita debt to per capita income with a max of 8%. You'll see that we are well under that for all of our out years, um, FY21 being the smallest of those out years at 4.54% and growing a little bit but not reaching our limit by any means. <clears throat> and then the third and final debt measure is debt as a percent of general fund expenditures, which has a maximum of 10%. Um, in FY21, we are currently sitting at 7.9% and growing a little bit more for FY22. But just another policy to keep in mind. So, Brittany, on that, so I know that you take a lot of what we have as projected projects in the pipeline to create that line. And as is a dynamic of the budget, a lot of times that stuff either gets shifted, moved, changed, and all that. So I know you're projecting that out based on the information you have for our projects. But the reality is that's why we're only at 7.9% now, because we've done different things to make sure those projects didn't cost that on the bond side, just for the public to understand it. That looks really bad because you say 10% and in six years we'll be at nine and a half percent. So just Correct. so people don't understand or understand that we're not probably never going to reach that, but it's Correct. That's just a Yeah. Based on what we have. Right. Yep. <laughs> okay. And then this was kind of what I spoke about earlier with the revenue forecast. This was as of <coughs> September. Well it was it was in October, but we were using data through September, the end of September, um, which we are projecting to be more favorable than we had our budget set at but for FY21, but it was not where it is right now. Um, so there's changing numbers in the forecast, but overall we still are, uh, we're in good shape. We, um, our county has not been affected in the way that we had anticipated, which is a good problem to have, um, but it's something that we should revisit when looking at our FY22 budget as well. There's a lot of pending um, litigation um, and a lot of unknown still <coughs> with everything playing out and unemployment insurance and... Yeah, it's, I'm glad you touched on that because that's the big one. I mean, that's a $180 million hit and that's pretty much already through one house in Annapolis and probably going to get through the other tomorrow. So. That's, so that's what I wanted to ask you. So if we're looking at this here, we're really only at a $2 million um, bump. So, and that doesn't take that into account, which in all likelihood, we're going to probably lose every bit of that on the unemployment insurance side, I would assume, um, without seeing the final numbers. Is that a safe assumption at this point? Or? That is a safe assumption. The state, um, the comptroller's office, they've come out with numbers, and for our county, they're anticipating for FY21 to have about a $1.2 million impact in okay. revenue loss. And then minimal from there on, but about 300,000 in FY22 and then pennies. Right, okay. So we are on the lucky end of that. Okay. If you look at other counties, okay. but it's definitely Still something hit, that though, right? I've considered in the next revenue forecast that we're working on. Um, we thought we'd be better in better shape originally than our September, which we were. We did a revised December, right. but it's definitely now more revised 
pending litigation. Okay, and then you brought up the other one, I guess since we're here on the, and the other one obviously being the Kerr one, but where we have the final numbers on that, one of the things that I think was discussed, and I guess we'll find out more about it, is the hold harmless clause, which is kind of troubling because, granted, the, the schools would be uh, whole, but that would keep our baseline at the higher level where we should be going backwards with the loss of students. The state's going to backfill that money, but then we're going to have a higher baseline to deal with next year, um, which could be in the millions, um, literally. So just, again, those are all those ones that are the tricky ones to figure out right now, but they could potentially be in the two to three million dollar range easily between the two of them together, so. And we met with um, the Board of Education today and they mentioned that too, how there would be a, an ask of the counties in order to receive that funding, that grant. Funding. So can you check on, and I meant to, I, I said something earlier because, but the, on that side of it is, I think there's a carrot dangled for that though, right? To where if the county does X, we can get X. Like, kind of like what we did last year with the one and a half percent, if we made that up, the teachers, the state would match the one and a half percent, so it basically covered the three percent on the teachers' salaries. The way they presented it to us was that they had to show that they, they were receiving county funding at or above maintenance of effort. So it's going to be Just, tied to maintenance It effort. could be a dollar, they had said. Okay. Well, that's good. A, a dollar more if you were providing more than MOE, or at or above, then they are eligible. So either ineligible or eligible. But did they say that's under Kerwin or Thornton? No, they just... See, that's where my question is, because if it's under Kerwin, we're already there. They had questions for us about Kerwin, so... Okay. I mean, if it's under Thornton, yes, we would have to pony up about one, whatever we've been doing, one and a half million dollars. Under... Yeah, under Thornton. Under Kerwin, we would only have to be at $600,000, basically. So, okay. Again, another million that dollars. Point, that, that point was not made clear by them. We didn't discuss that. Well, so I think they overrode the governor's veto today um, on, in the House on Kerwin, so, and the Senate's supposed to vote Friday. So had to know it's pretty plausible to say that it's going to get overridden, which will put Kerwin, what we had, what you had in front of you today, in play. Mm -hmm. Whether they decide to add the whole harmless side will be additional money. And, and like I said, I think there's some kind of carrot dangled with that whole harmless side to where if the county puts up X, the state will backfill that until next year. But my concern, and I know Jim, I think Chris was on Mako and have heard this, is that, that but that'll raise our baseline. So it basically would take Kerwin, we'd be in like year four of Kerwin, year three of Kerwin with our baseline. So next year when they come back, the way Kerwin's structured is it doesn't mean that whatever this number is is where you're at. It, you're still going to have a uh, maintenance of effort plus every year. Um, this is this was a target number, and so it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm just saying it's for us. It could be it could range anywhere from three to five million dollars with all those pieces put together in this year's budget. Um, to, like you said, depending on what comes out of Annapolis, and right now it's not looking good for us or all the counties as a whole. But yeah, so. Definitely something that's going to part in our next year's budget. I pity you on your end having to keep juggling them numbers. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Can I have a quick question, Jack? Um, is, are there restrictions on how the board, of, the, the individual counties' board of education can spend that money? So under Kerwin, there's five. Right now, I think it's seven spending categories. Um, under Kerwin, there's five defined. Um, they kind of 
some stuff got lumped in, but there's the, yeah, because you got, uh, through the accountability, they've taken it down to five, and they've kind of meshed those together to where, um, yes, you have to, to answer your question short, yes, they have to be spent within those categories, and versus Thornton, they actually have to be reported on within those categories and show the results. So that's how they've attached an accountability side to Kerwin. Okay. But yeah, and, and you, can, you won't be able to do the major transfer like we just did earlier. That's mm -hmm. not part of Kerwin. That, that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, so. You gotta live within your means, basically. Sorry, Brittany. The next chart is just for your information. It just shows the change in um, cash value for properties, and that's it's from January 18, uh, 2018 through January of 2021. That's about a three percent increase. So it just shows you kind of where it's trending. And then we get to our recommendations. So. Um, the first recommendation that the committee has come up with is they are just advising that um, even though revenue projections have been favorable through the state budget, um, there's decisions that could be that could impact our county. So it's something that we definitely need to um, take into consideration. And some of the additional state cuts or the should, could be a transfer to state expenses to the counties. So it's something we need to look out for. Um, the county should consider the short-term and long-term impacts on Kerwin. Um, this is still considerably uncertain. So as we discussed, it's just something that we need to keep an eye on and be aware of what, our, what we're looking at. So continuing. The committee is recommending that the county consider the following, um, and these are potential Challenges that we may face over the next five years, um, growth and comprehensive plan, including job growth and consideration of types of jobs supported and encouraged, um, income tax growth, property tax growth and trending, economic development trends, and education funding, which is also Kerwin, but um, considering school construction issues and um, student enrollment as well. Um, the county should consider to continue to observe agreed upon debt measures um, and that they emphasize that we should also be really looking into our out years and not just FY21 or I'm sorry FY22. Um, sometimes we do obviously put a lot of emphasis on 22 but we should be very it should be considered the other other out years should be heavily considered as well. And then their next recommendation was that the capital budget should be taken advantage of the county's strong financial condition and the use of capital fund balance and pay go um, and reducing the debt amount. Consideration should be given to the county's future development and associated population growth and the potential impacts on capital construction and Board of Education projects in particular. Um, 
and then their last little note was just on budget growth um, and I will, the current forecasts indicate low revenue growth of two to four percent um, FY20 experience of higher than anticipated growth in income tax can be explained <coughs> primarily by federal government actions. Without the support, the models may predict um, much lower growth in income tax for FY22 and 21 as well. Um, so it's just something that should be considered and we should also look at the growth, but maintain a slow, low, low and slow growth approach for FY22. There was a time when two to four percent was great growth. Yes. I mean that was that was the what we everybody hoped for. So, and uh, you know I I don't know I I I think it's a great report. Um, I think that some of the issues that some of our neighboring counties with income tax. Uh, I, I can see their, their problems. Uh, I'm going to knock on wood that it doesn't happen here in Queen Anne's County. I think that there's a couple projects that are bringing in that income tax in a hurry. You know, I mean, I just, the, the amount of homes that are being sold here and the amount of people coming here for homes that are in the $600,000 range uh, is bringing property tax and income tax. And I think that's been a blessing to Queen Anne's County. Uh, in these dark days, so I'm, I'm happy for that, uh, and I, I hope it continues for at least the next three years, so things get back to some kind of normalcy in, in the economy and, and in the country. Just my two cents. Anybody else? Questions? Comments? Well, to the committee, job well done. If you guys have anything to add. Come on up. Yeah. Well, I will absolutely. There you go. Come on up, here, Bernie. You know, I used to sit here a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> you know your way around, so. <laughs> very important what this committee used to say, but uh, just number one, thank you very much for letting me serve on the uh, committee. Thank you. Second is, um, I thought it was extremely informative, and as a citizen participant here, uh, the county's in strong fiscal shape. And for two, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, you're, um, you have growth and your accessible base is up. Your median household income is fourth in the state. And uh, you alluded to uh, that just as a revenue producer. But as much as that is, you've learned to stay within your policy guidelines. And when you look at that, you're not at the end points. You're not pushing anything. So I say that to, because it's public and be reported. Uh, you folks have done a really good job. Uh, the question is, uh, will you be challenged in the future? And uncertainty is going to be an issue. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, I think you, you have a, a false sense of security sometimes with federal money might be coming in to the county or through the federal government. Watch what you do with it. It's one-time money, and you get this false illusion that everything's all right. And stay with stay within the guidelines. And I, I think think you have some genuine concerns uh, about Kerwin. Uh, I think you have some genuine concerns. It's just going to be a small ebb and flow about um, enrollment in the schools. I think you'll get schools get back to normalization. You're going to get a return that population back, and um, that's up to the board of education. They're going to get plenty of money. All right, they're going to, the current one is, um, it was a bipartisan bill. Uh, it's got some off ramps. And consequently, the question is whether people stay to what was prescribed spending wise. And then you should be okay. Um, 
That being said, in these times with low interest rates, you also have the tendency to bite a lot of capital projects, buy down debt, which is a good thing. But your capital projects, just watch if they have how much of uh, accompanying operational costs are associated with them. Because in a long, you know, and we, we could afford it. In five years down the road, that escalating personnel cost and compounds, and all of a sudden you don't look so good on. But overall, I think you folks. Um, Number one, you're very fortunate to have Steve Wilson with his background and his global perspective about, you know, how, how the economy works. And I say that with all sincerity. And the second thing is I think the, the citizens of Queen Anne's County need to know you, you folks have been great stewards of their money. And, you know, as a citizen, that's what we want. Uh, so continue to course. You've set good uh, guidelines. and. Um, you know, just stay within them. Uh, there will be some challenges, but I, I think you're positioned very well uh, as, uh, as commissioners to meet any of those challenges. So it's my two cents. I don't have to ask for any money. It's a good day. So. <laughs> I think those days are over for you, right? Oh, no. I've been running the legislature all the time for another group. Yeah. So I'm going to turn it back over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's Bernie. having you. Brittany, uh, Joe did end up joining. Okay. If you... Hi, Joe. I got to mute him for us. Hey, Joe. You're with us. He's muted. He's muted. Yeah. I asked him to mute. Unmute uh, yes, yourself. Mute again, Joe. There we go. There it is. There you are. We, yep. we, do a, we do a lot of Teams calls, not so many Zoom calls, so I'm a little clumsy with this one. Uh, I think I've been on every different one of these that there is. Um, thanks, thanks for uh, hearing us out tonight. The, uh, the report really speaks for itself, and I would echo a whole lot of what Dr. Sadusky said. Um, you are well positioned, well reserved. Uh, there are a lot of challenges and moving parts to this budget coming up and the next couple of years coming up. Uh, legislature's in session. We don't know what's coming out of there exactly yet. Federal government is doing things every day. We don't know what's exactly coming out of there. Um, stay the course. We'll use the crystal ball as best we can. And I think things are going to be fine. Thank you. Very good. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Linda? No? Nothing? Okay. Time is precious. That's all. That's all we have, folks. There we go. Thank well, you. Thank you, everybody on the committee. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. It was great. Uh-oh. <laughs> all right. You get cookies. Oh. <laughs> cookies. Huh? Cookies. Uh, you can continue passing those around, Mr. Moran. <laughs> I, I just, they're there. Thanks. Very well done. Oh, oh. Look out. That was close. All right, commissioners. Next, we have um, you guys our final presentation anybody. for this evening. We have Mr. Stephen Chanley, Parks and Recreation update. Steve, come on in. Yeah, thank you. And we got you teed up here. And Can't Steve's do. presentation is also in your book, item number two, under tab six, and also on the screen. All right. Well, thank you for having me for my quarterly update. Um, we'll jump right into it. I got a, a number of slides, but that's just indicative of the, the work that we've been getting done during this last uh, several months. Um, again, as always, just kind of keeping program open space, um, you know, front and center. These are some of the projects that we have um, that are open with project open space uh, funds. 
We've got court rehab projects. We've got uh, the Route 8 trail extension. We also have the uh, Terrapin uh, Park restroom and ranger station. Uh, those monies listed there are monies from, um, from, the, from DNR. Um, these are some approved infrastructure projects. Uh, the first one you see is the Route 18 park. Uh, we refabricated the um, outfield fences and we also installed a new home run field fence on field number four with the Mo strip. Um, we've got some tennis court paving. Uh, you can see them listed there as well as basketball uh, court paving as well as um, the, the standards that go with it. Um, one of the bigger projects we got done this year was the uh, Bass Neck parking lot. Um, you see, the, see here we've got it striped, we've got it landscaped, we've got trees planted. Um, it looks, it turned out really well. Um, it's more efficient, we've got the drainage going correctly, so uh, we're looking forward to getting a lot of folks down there and you know, seeing the good work that um, we got done there. Uh, continuing on, uh, one of the good winter projects we had at Route 18 is, um, again, you can see the landscaping with the, um, the rocks replacing the mulch. Uh, we've had staff limb up basically every tree in the park, which will uh, increase our efficiency in mowing um, because before if the limbs were down, staff were going around two and three times and getting beat up, so now they'll be able to just, you know, go through there in a quick, efficient manner. Looks really good. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that such a uh, big project had been taken, um, taken on at Route 18 for all the, the trees since it's been constructed. So it looks really good if you guys get a chance to go out there and take a look. Oops. Uh, one of the other projects at Route 18 is we're doing some, uh, some ball field work. Um, there's a new um, uh, field mixture on there. Um, that's uh, field number four and we've, um, are doing the other three as well. Um, again, you know, going back to the Terrapin restroom, this is uh, Terrapin Park. You can see where the ranger station and restroom will be. It's directly at the back of the, um, uh, the parking lot when you come into it. Uh, again, here's a, um, a rendering of what will be involved there. Um, it'll be the, the ranger station and two um, bathroom facilities, men on one side, women's on the other side. The idea is to try to funnel everybody into one area and just you know, begin to get, um, get control of how people access the park. White Marsh Park, we had a number of uh, trees that were planted um, along the roadway and throughout the park. Um, we've had some problems with um, beaver down at Ewing Park. We actually had to close the park down for a couple of days due to uh, the damage that they um, <laughs> presented us. And you can see the, the picture on the right, you know, is a pretty significant tree. Um, so we got in there and we took those trees down, those trees down, and we also, um, you know, attempted to take care of the, um, the den. Um, we had staff go in there with machinery, break it all up, tear it up, 24 hours later, reconstructed. Stick of dynamite. Boom. <laughs> Do I get approval for that? <laughs> um, so anyway, that's, you know, that's an ongoing problem down there. We had that same problem last year, but again, we're, you know, looking at ways to, you know, to manage it. Um, again, as we, uh, I was here earlier in the, the summer, we had the problem with the, uh, the blowout on the trail. Um, this is what it looked like after the storm blew through there. Um, you can see completely underneath the trail. Um, this is the fix. Um, the fix took longer than, than we had anticipated, but the good thing is that we did it right, because if we would have just replaced the same pipe in there, 
there was going to be the propensity that it was going to get blown out again. So I think the- You enlarged the pipe. Yeah, we enlarged the pipe to um, 60 inches. So it's significantly larger, um, but it's also taking care of, um, of an area of about 77 acres of water that's coming down. And you know, the more development, the more pavement, you know, the more water that's coming down there. So this should be able to handle it uh, without any problems. Steve, was if there that help, blows out, we're was, in serious trouble. Was there help from the MD, from MDE in the state as, um, as far as the cost for this? Not, not for the cost. Okay. We went through um, and gave them notification of what we were doing in the waterway. Okay. Uh, I have to thank uh, DPW for assisting us and um, digging it out and, and placing the pipe in. And now we'll go back in. Right now, there's obviously there's a, a rough patch on there. It's too cold to pave. Right. In springtime, we'll come back and we'll put a fresh. Um, is that section of trail open? Section of trail is open. Um, it's just a little bit of a rough ride, you know, for that uh, short section. Um, with recreation, obviously, you know, COVID had affected us uh, dramatically. We had to cancel all of our winter leagues. Um, we are still continuing with having um, uh, spring field use meetings. Um, they are virtual, but it's actually a, it has turned out to kind of be a benefit that we learned that we can go ahead and have these meetings with these user groups. Um, I think it's a way that we're going to go ahead and continue and offer this as an option to our meeting just to make sure that we give um, the ability for all people to participate in those meetings because usually the meetings are about um, either at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the evening so it allows people to still participate whether they're at work or at home or stuck in traffic. They can hear what's going on. We're in the midst of planning for our summer camps. Uh, we're hoping by March 1st we'll be getting some more information from the Board of Education of, of what we can get in and where we can go. Um, so we'll, we'll be coming out with some uh, solutions to, to the summer program. One of the other things that uh, we learned out of COVID was um, we, we have now the ability to have our forms um, signed electronically. And again, it's more of an efficient manner of, of doing business. It's less paperwork. Um, that's always a problem with our camps and our programs is getting the signatures and getting the forms in. And this is a way to kind of expedite that process. Artificial turf use. Um, just from October, and this was the last time that I was here, from October to February, we've had 740 hours of use on the artificial turf, which is incredible, um, which is really good. It goes to show that it's a, it's a well-needed facility. It's well-utilized. Um, you can see we're getting um, participation from outside county organizations as well as inside county organizations. Um, Lacrosse is our major user right now. Um, you can see the two organizations that have um, utilized it the most. So far from uh, July of 2020 to February of 2021, 20, um, we've generated about $70,000 in revenue. So that's a good thing. And obviously, COVID had a lot to do with it because other fields were closed from other jurisdictions. They bled over into us. So. I, I, I want to forewarn you that that's not going to be the standard of probably getting $70,000 a year from uh, from the rentals, but it's still a good chunk of Oh, I think we'll change. get that and more. I do. I, I think that that's, that's, that's a great number. I mean, what we really need is 100000 Right. 50000 a field ten, every 10 years, replace the turf, and mm -hmm. it's paying for itself. So, you know, I think that that's a, a huge win. I mean, we're not striping the field. We're not fixing the grass or the sprinklers. You're not, you're not putting manpower there. So, I mean, you know, this is, 
I look forward to seeing what the numbers are next year. I, I still, it will be good. Mm -hmm. there, there's no doubt, but there still is manpower that is attributed to that because yeah. with, with um, a certain amount of hourly use, you have to go in there and you have to groom the field. Right. And that's all about you know safety and making sure that we pass our GMAX test and things like that. So, <clears throat> you know, there's always that that misnomer that artificial turf fields are without maintenance. <laughs> it's a different type of maintenance that we right. have to do. Um, one guy, like one say, guy on a tractor. Save, you save on, on yeah. supplies and, yeah. and, and, and things like that. So, you know, it's a, it's a nice balance uh, between that. Just real quick, um, uh, we, we met with the Board of Ed earlier today, and one of the things that was brought up was, was the stadium field use, the turf for the, obviously with the <clears throat> change in um, starting time for high school sports, and, and they were going to reach out to you right. um, as far as planning. Uh, obviously, with the weather and the dampness of the fields, you want to be careful in using our real turf, right. I mean, the real grass fields, and, and getting too much use there. Um, have they breached? Yeah, we have already met with the Board of Education, and we told them that, obviously, if they try to hold fall sports in February and March, they're going to tear up the natural grass. And it's not going to recover, and it's going to be an expensive process and a long process to get it back to, to where it's going to be. And this is where the artificial turf comes into play, is you know, they'll be scheduling their, um, their, their teams on that. Usually, according to the MOU, we have it after 7 p.m., Monday through Friday, and we have it after, I want to say, 10 a.m. on Saturdays and then all day Sundays. Well, because of what's going on, you've we modified them, that. We've modified that. We okay. told the Board of Education that we would go ahead and give up our Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays for them to have it all day long. So that way, they'll be able to schedule all their teams because they're going to have to uh, contend with light or lack of light mm -hmm. um, um, because of the darkness. So we've we've given them that this Saturday. It snows. <laughs> We've given them all day Saturday um, so they can go ahead and get out there and get started on the right foot and then go ahead and continue on. And we've had conversations if we have other gaps and other planning times with that, that they can reach out to us and we can kind of work together Good. to see if we can get a gap in here and there. So, um, you know, we're doing our best to make sure that, you know, everybody, everybody gets a need out of it. But we also are, are, are sensitive to our users that have already um, you know, paid for use. And from the very beginning, we told them that in the event that schools came back like, like they are, that their times may have to be modified. So it's, this isn't a shock to them for some of the users that we have to move around or refund. So we've been upfront with communication as far as you know, how how they need to be kind of um, forgiving, and it's really a you know Flexible. A, a squishy situation, just moving things around. <clears throat> um, park and resource plan. We've got a lot going on. Um, we've had some water quality focused projects. Uh, number one is the bat's neck redesign um, of the paving area and conservation. Uh, we're seeding some certain areas down there. Um, we've got the conceptual layout of the Route 8 trail extension, which would be from Davidson Road to Mowbray Park. Um, and some other projects with uh, the DNR uh, Trust Fund grant. Um, again, Bat's Neck, you know, talked about that. Uh, Blue Heron Driving Range, uh, we're planting some trees down there. Um, 16 trees lining the drive, and it takes up about 1.66 acres. Blue Heron Nature Preserve. 
Um, you know, we've got 6,050 6, tree whips um, that are being planted down there, which will take up about 15 acres. Graysonville Park, again, tree planting, 91 trees, 66 shrubs. Um, and the last one is White Marsh Park, which is what the picture you saw of where there were 850 trees um, that were planted. So we um, planted about another five acres worth of, uh, of land. Um, again, here's a picture of uh, Conquest with the DNR 2019 Trust Fund grant and our partnership with uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife as well as Washington um, College. Um, unfortunately, it's a, it's a smaller graph, but each one of those blocks tells how many acres are being either replanted or there's a wetland or um, there's a meadow. So there's a lot that's going on out there and it's been a, an extremely great partnership with Washington College and they've... Uh, you know, they've been a godsend out there with um, us managing that property. Um, we also assisted Ken Air's Development Foundation in selection of their vendor for um, their signage project that they um, just started. We've uh, cooperated and coordinated with um, Moore um, at Terrapin Park for the uh, single track uh, bike uh, trail. Um, we have also been doing our LPPRP um, we got uh, the surveys back. I think um, I may have informed about that um, uh, a couple months ago. But anyway, that was uh, through Salisbury University. We got about 540 responses from the citizens. Um, it's a little less than the last time we had um, the survey out, but what we are attributing that to is there were two surveys that came out from the county at the same time, and we think that people may have seen you saw they, one, you saw the other, already it might answered. be the same thing. That they're, mm -hmm. they're getting hit up again with the same information. So uh, I think timing hurt us on that one. But we got a lot of good responses and good, uh, good information. Some of the things that the people wanted were actually things that, um, that we have proposed in our upcoming budget. So it's nice that, you know, that the citizens and the department are on the same page looking to kind of get the same thing uh, taken care of. Uh, we're also assessing some potential Eagle Scout projects out at Terrapin, and um, we're also working in coordination with DPW about the bulkhead replacement uh, down at the Kent Narrows, which brings us right into public landings, and uh, fishing line recycling program is uh, taking off. We're partnering with um, Plastic Free QAC. Uh, we've got some uh, new um, containers that are out there, as well as pickup boxes. Um, you can see um, we're, we're adding new sites, but we're also refreshing some of the other sites that have them. Um, the video security system down at uh, the Waterman's Boat Basin, uh, we got that up and running um, uh, the first week of December. Um, we were able to view it from our office, which is great. It stores information for approximately 30 days. So in the event that we have to backtrack, we now have a good system that we can go ahead and do that. So. I want to thank you guys for, for assisting us with, with that. Uh, while you're on that subject matter, I know that, that um, a, a lot of the watermen appreciate the no fishing signs and no trespassing that you put on down there as well as a few of the other landings. So uh, on their behalf, thank you. Yeah. Again, public landings, a new year, new permits. Uh, we're continuing with the same prices. Um, so blue is what we're looking for when we look on the, you know, on the trailer, <laughs> um, making sure everybody is in compliance. Uh, some dredging projects. We just finished the uh, course career for dredging uh, last week. Um, 
We get, we're working with the um, uh, community from Price Creek about dredging. Um, looking forward to trying to do it in the fall of 2021 and earlier um, well, last year. Uh, we, we did the uh, Kent Narrows dredging, so those are some big projects that have been taking place. James has been working hard on getting that together, and you know, each one of those projects is, you know, it's a long, involved process from, ben from beginning to end. So you've done a great job. Uh, Blue Heron Golf Course, um, our grounds maintenance contract expires at the end of this year. Um, I've been talking with Eric about um, reviewing the contract, making sure it has everything we need in there and when we're going to go ahead and put it out to bid. Um, so I want to make sure that we put it out to bid in you know, a decent amount of time so we have time to review it and then come back to you guys for, uh, for your blessing. Um, COVID has also increased the, uh, the amount of golf that's been played. You know, people being outside. Uh, from July to uh, January 8th, uh, we've already played uh, 15,900 rounds of golf. That's 85% of what we projected. And we still have six more months to go, so that's, that's looking good on that side. The driving rate has met 80% um, of their goals. Rental fees are at 93% and green fees are at 103%. So um, in Eric's world, it's been a good, it's been a good, um, good season. Um, Rental fees, you mean for carts, you mean? For uh, carts or yes. full carts? Yep. Okay. Um, for Bay Bridge Airport, uh, the obstruction removal program, um, they completed that project. Everything was closed. They removed the trees and have uh, put up the fencing. Um, the rehab and safety area, um, they're in the pre-design activity right now. Um, survey's been completed and uh, design is, is moving forward. That grant application is due um, May 3rd of 2021. Um, again, one of the big things is, you know, um, with the upcoming spring is um, the, the use for Mattap Peak Beach, Terrapin, and Ferry Point. Um, in a nutshell, you know, these are, these are some of the, the, the big bullet points that are going to change. Um, and we're actually gonna have a meeting um, tomorrow um, about these and how to, how to publicize some of these changes that we're, we're promoting. You know, one of the things is because we're saying, you know, you can't do this, we wanna make sure that we don't have signs out there that's just a list of no, 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 no. That's not, you know, that's not welcoming to anybody. You know, we don't gain anything by that. Tourism doesn't gain anything by that. So we're looking at a way to market the, the correct way to get out there of how the park is supposed to be used and the proper behavior that is associated with that. Um, so um, the big thing is, is you know, at, at Terrapin and at Ferry Point, you know, we're gonna discontinue coolers, we're gonna discontinue beach chairs, um, fishing will only be permissible in certain areas at Terrapin. And again, we'll continue with the no fishing, which has already been there at Ferry Point. And then lastly, we're going to try to reestablish those grasses. As people went down and, and utilized the waterfront areas, you know, they expanded wherever they could. And what they did is they, you know, they were killing, cutting, and digging up the, the grasses that are there to hold the, um, uh, the, the sand in the soil there. So we as you know, park stewards, we have to make sure that that is, you know, is protected. 
and this is you know what we're going to have to do and it obviously it's not going to be a popular decision but it's the right decision and that's you know that's what we're going to have to you know continue to promote with that so I think it's pointing out that these are not bathing beaches correct these are nature preserves so right. we're going to keep the nature preserved right they're nature nature parks are intended to to walk along and if you want to you know sit down you know without a towel you know just sit down on the um, sandy area that's fine you know that's that's what it's there for but it's not there to to bring a, a cooler and have you know drinks and snacks and spend the entire day out there and put up tents and you know block yourself from the sun you know the idea is to enjoy what you see and you know there's a there's a fine line and I'm sure people will test us on what that fine line is um, but you know, as long as we continue to, to be consistent and put out the right information and, and a consistent message, you know, we'll be able to, um, to, to make that change. So at Terrapin, you're going to have to, because you have tables out there, you're going to still allow that, the people to bring coolers in there? Right. There's, so, the, the picnic area is still going to remain okay. the same, and you can, you can bring a cooler to the picnic area. What about Ferry Point? Ferry Point, I know which picnic table you're talking about. Right. That'll probably have to... To come out just because. Yeah, that's I agree. I mean, that's going to make it easier. It's a picnic table, so therefore right. I should be able to picnic, and that's just one less argument that we'll have to to, okay. to contend with. All right. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as terrapin, yes, there is that um, that that picnic area. It's when you cross the causeway. That's when you know the no um, no coolers, no you know blankets and beach towels and all that kind of stuff will will take place. And that is the end of uh, what we have uh, done the last couple of months. It's been a busy time for us, um, even though things are, are different. Uh, we got a lot of projects done, and you know, I just got to um, you know, tip my hat to our staff. You know, they've taken advantage of this, this nice weather um, that we've had so far up until probably tomorrow. Um, but we've gotten a lot of things done, and you know, I think people, when they come to the parks, they'll be able to see some changes that we've made, and they'll be able to see some improvements. And that's, you know, that's one of my goals. Is every season we should be able, we as the, the citizens, should be able to see some changes that were made from one year to the next. So that's my presentation for today. Guys are doing a great job. We're on the right, right. I think we're on the right path, and. We're moving along, and we're getting these things knocked out, and bringing it all up to up to standards. And I think that, you know, Bat's Neck is just another shining example. You know, Love Point Park, Route 18 Park, all these, you know, upgrades is, is what the public wants and what they need. So, great job to everybody, you know, down there. I'll so. pass it on to him. Mm -hmm. One question for you, sir. So. We'll imagine that up to last year there was a kind of baseline of usage at. Terrapin and Mattapeak and so on. And last year, it might, that baseline might have become 1.5 or 1.7 or some rather enormously bigger number. What would you, just as a sort of supposition, imagine this year would be? I mean, you must have some sort of number. Well, I think, yeah. you know, we have, we've been going back and forth as far as how we're going to, to manage that. And I think, you know, Obviously, when, when COVID was at its peak and we really kind of squeezed down, um, I think there's, there's capacity to expand those numbers to, to allow a little bit more. Because, again, we're changing the use of it. And, you know, I, I think um, at one time it was, I would say, four, 450, something like that, uh, for Terrapin. But that was thinking that people were still going to use it as a, as a beach. 
but now you know we can probably increase that because we're hoping that people will just be you know biking and walking and you know taking pictures and having you know the picnic in the picnic area so the the change of use i think will automatically change the numbers that that come um, because we're going to have um, um, attendance at the front to to enforce these rules so we're going to catch them at the parking lot and, and and that catching them consists of what just taking their coolers or telling them don't bring the cooler in what is well, that it'll, it'll be a combination of signage and, and staff informing them of what they can and can't do and to saying that it's it's not allowable if, right. if someone comes in with a you know a, a 64 quart cooler and we tell them no yeah. you know that's that's you know the first rule one we point to the sign so look you know, sorry, you can't bring this in. At least we caught you early and you can bring it back to your car. If we catch you when you're all the way down at the beach and then say you have to take it back, then that's when we're going to get chewed up. And so, you know, it's a matter of, you know, of placement of staff. It's a matter of the message that goes out. And, you know, and, and, and really, it's just like anything. It's a matter of consistency. You got to have that consistency seven days a week during that season. And that's, you know, that would be... Um, a challenge. So, so getting back to my question, though, what you did was to define the number of people that could be on the beach. I'm asking a little different question, which is what do you expect the demand to be? Like the people that more or less? I think it'll be, I think it'll be less. Yeah. And I think that way because, um, because of the enforcement that we had last year. And people knew that there were certain standards that they'd have to wait in line. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that people will say, ah, you know what, maybe we need to find a different place to go to. Um, and then, you know, if we get our message out consistently and early, then I think that we'll continue to send that message that, you know what, this isn't a beach. You know, uh, Mattapique is our only true beach that there is. You know, that's the only one that is, um, has the waters tested. So the rest of them are just, you know, it's just open water. Yeah. Thank you, sir. It'll be an interesting time. <laughs> It'll be a process getting people yeah. Yeah. acclimated to, to actually, it's not that we're changing the rules, we're actually just putting in what has actually been there the whole time. And that's, that will be a tough thing because that's been probably 20 years. Right. 20 years of allowing that type of behavior. And obviously, you know, any type of change is takes some time to contain. Right. So, uh, um, Real quick, so I would, um, just as a, re a reminder, because our high school sports will be going clear into the middle of June, um, you're gonna see, um, I think we're gonna need, I know you guys have seasons and, 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 and certain things are done to our, our sports fields um, in our county parks to prepare for the seasons. Because the high school sports are gonna be going clear to the middle of June, whereas they're generally vacated the fields by the middle of May, right, right. we're not gonna have that luxury. So I think there's gonna be a greater demand for parks and recs and the county-owned sporting fields, right. including baseball diamonds and lacrosse fields and things like that. So I, just throwing that out there, um, to be aware that there'll probably be uh, a greater need sooner. 
Right, and we just, like, like I alluded to, we had our um, spring sports meeting uh, back in January. Everybody was required to turn in their schedule request, and again, that's what they are, their request, mm -hmm. um, um, by, by last Friday. So James has them now. We'll go through. We'll start to you know plug people in where they can can fit in. You know, one of the thing in order to meet the demand of people is people also have to realize that you know fields where they are in parks. You know, it's a limited thing. It doesn't grow. You don't grow more fields in a park. You have what you have. But you know what? Two miles down the road, there's another park that might be underutilized, and you have to be willing to travel. You know that two miles. You made that, that three clear. Miles. You made that clear at the meeting. Yep, and we do what we do every year. But again, just you know, we're all guilty of it. We like things close by. <laughs> so, but in order to meet that need, that need is still it's still within the county. It's still reachable, and you know people. And we just do. Have we to have. We've got a lot of multi-use fields. We do. No more than 25 minutes apart from each other. Correct. Maximum 30. You could leave one, and in 30 minutes be at another one. No problem. Right. So if you're running a, we've got a big tournament going on, 30 there's minutes to travel line. to one field right. for a ne another game an hour later, it's no big deal. It can work. Yep. Definitely. So. Good job. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Steve. All right. Thank you. Presentation. Thank you all. All. All right, commissioners, we have uh, two pieces of legislation that can be voted on this evening. If you want to turn to tab number seven, we have, first we have County Ordinance 20-13. This is a cottage home planned residential development. It is available for a vote tonight. Motion to approve County Ordinance number 20-13. Second. Got a motion to second. Any discussion? <clears throat> All those in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? Five in favor. All right, and lastly, we have County Ordinance 21-01, Public Facilities Bond Authorization 2021. Motion to approve bill number 21-01. Second. Got a motion and a second. Any discussion? <laughs> All those in favor? Aye. Aye, zero. All right, thank you, commissioners. That brings us to public and Press and public comments, part two. Any? Oh, I did have an email from, um, sorry, from Wick Dudley. Uh, it was actually about the 2013 college home in supportive. I believe he had said something about it at the last meeting, but he sent a letter in. And you want me to read that letter for you? Well, we've already voted on it. Right. right. Yeah, I know. That's a, we can put the letter in the record. Yeah. He had made his point about it at the last yeah. meeting. This is yeah. just a letter yeah. follow-up, I believe. It'll be in the record. Yep. yep. Then that's all. That's all? Okay. It was on the waiting side. All right. <laughs> now we go to roundtable. All right. Uh, I'm actually going to yield my time to Commissioner Wilson and Commissioner Corcorino to try and answer some of Ms. Spagnoli's questions that were raised earlier tonight. All right. So before they get on a winded tour, why don't, why don't oh, yeah. Jim and I go? And, go ahead. So um, I had an opportunity uh, last week uh, or a week and a half ago to to swear in the um, <clears throat> new officers for the Graysonville Volunteer Firehouse, you know we that usually have these these dinners and 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 the new officers are sworn in and um, and obviously because of COVID, you know everything is done differently nowadays. Uh, so I had an opportunity to do that, um, and I think I'll also mention um, with the kids going back to school. Uh, 
I think the parents really have to take um, making sure that your child doesn't have any symptoms, starting with taking your child's temperature before they get on the bus. Um, we're excited about the fact that our schools are going to be opening up even if it's just on a hybrid schedule. Um, and we want to be able to continue to do this and even expand on that hybrid schedule. But it's not going to work if we have kids coming to school with the symptoms. So just make sure you're, you're checking your kids' temperatures before you let them get on the bus. That's all I have. Okay. I uh, just want to um, bring to everybody's attention that don't know what's going on. The comp plan is in an update process right now and uh, citizen input. So just check the county website uh, for the link to get you into these uh, virtual meetings. It's nice, you don't have to leave the house. You get on your computer, you get on your phone. You can call in, you can listen, you can uh, you know, uh, voice your opinion, your suggestions on what the county needs or what the county doesn't need. So that's moving forward and there's plenty more uh, for that going on. Uh, I had the privilege in the last week to support a couple bills that the county has put in, uh, testifying on Sunday hunting uh, last week, and today testifying on, uh, on opposing uh, how we elect uh, county commissioners uh, in a home rule, home code, home rule, and there's five counties in Maryland that do it the same way we do it, and there's a bill right now to eliminate that. And I, you know, I voiced our our opinion and how we did it in 2016 with a uh, referendum and a straw vote, straw poll, and how it came back 54 to 46 opposed to changing how we elect our commissioners. And I voiced that opinion. If they want to do something, let the counties do it. Let the counties do it themselves. They, you don't need the state. Again, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, is is the wrong answer. So. You know, I, I, I'm a little worried about that. There was a lot of people in, in support of it, so I'm hoping that uh, our delegation keep an eye on that, especially when it gets over to the Senate side, because that's it's going to get interesting. Uh, the last thing I have is, once again, uh, the Bay Bridge. Uh, as I told you last meeting, that uh, MDTA has suspended the NEPA process until they can hold uh, in-person hearings. Uh, I got a call this last week that uh, the state uh, did everything on a NEPA study for the 95-270 project, uh, and it was virtual. So, you know, I don't know where the double standard's coming from there. Hopefully we can find out. But I'd like to see, uh, you know, it, Todd, I, I don't know if you were with me, or Steve, I think the three of us sat in here at one of the Bragg meetings, and I asked the question about ContraFlow westbound. Do you remember that? Do you recall that? I said that a state, you know, in, in some of the ideas like our Sunday evening traffic, again, you know, we know it's coming. Uh, everything the state's been doing out there on the road is to help traffic get to the beach, but not to help the traffic get home or get through our county. So, you know, I, I posed the question, why can't we do ContraFlow on Sundays, maybe from just noon to four, just to relieve that, that massive congestion uh, going westbound so put ContraFlow on the eastbound bridge, have four lanes going westbound. In the past, they couldn't do this because there wasn't enough room when you got off the eastbound bridge to merge back over to the right and get on the uh, westbound side of, of 50. Uh, with the toll boost being eliminated, gone, there's room now, I believe, to make that happen. And again, I've, I've said this before, in Virginia and other locations, they use the shoulder of the road as their third and or fourth lane during high traffic times. Uh, I, I put that question to uh, 
Is it Will? Who's the chief engineer? Will, Will, Will Pines. Pines. Will Pines. And, and uh, Will said, no, we couldn't do it. And, and that was pretty much the end of it. Uh, and what I'd like to see is, and again, you know, Todd, maybe you have a conversation with Kimberly Horn. What would it cost for them to look at this and see if it can be done? Because right now, is anybody that's been crossing the bridge has noticed on the eastern shore, or excuse me, the western shore side, going eastbound, there's a lot of construction that's getting ready to gear up. And that is the new gate system. Again, uh, the gate system is supposed to be completed by 2022 or 23. I think it's 22, the end of November of 22, I think is when they said, I got a feeling they'll be done a year in advance. And these are automated gates, which gets rid of all the barrels, and I'm all for it. I think it's a great idea. Uh, but don't put it in a position to where now you can say, well, now we can't do contraflow because we've got a gate there. You know, throwing good money after bad. So, you know, I'd like to see one, what Kimberly Horn says, if they could review it. Because, you know, again, we, we take the word of the, of, of the state and... I don't know that we should be doing that. Uh, you know, what's, what's the best interest for the citizens of Queen Anne's County in getting that traffic gone? Uh, you know, it, it's monumental. Uh, with, with the delay now in the NEPA, you know, it's, it looks like there's a very good chance that uh, we won't ever get a, we might get a final on uh, part one of the NEPA, but part two, the funding and the, and, and the expensive portion uh, will probably be left for the next governor. So, you know, I, we can't just sit still and wait. We have to be the ones constantly with pushing. And if we could get with Kimberly Horn, find out what their thoughts on that is, and then maybe send a letter to the governor and the secretary of uh, SHA to, you know, expressing that concern and see what they can, you know, derive with it. And that's all I got. I'll let the needle stickers go now. <laughs> all right, Commissioner Wilson. Well, let me ask you, gentlemen, do you think we ought to spend a little bit of time on the, uh, some of these questions that the lady posed to us? Because I'm happy to do that. That's why I was yielding my time. Uh, <laughs> I haven't had really time, obviously, to go through her list of uh, queries, but the one that seemed most central in her discussion of this or re reading the paper was the inequities proposed by the triangle, so-called. And let me say to the general public about that triangle, we didn't create it and define it, and we are the creatures of uh, the state in this regard and the health department. This board does not determine school policy or health policy. So coming to us to remedy those situations where there are inequities is a, is a not entirely reasonable in, in a sense, but certainly we represent the public and in that, let me say this, there are a number of problems when you run a thing like a pyramid like that. Let me give you an example. On the highway, you have a speed limit and that speed limit defines both cement mixers and sports cars and yet everybody has to go 55 and in this triangle, you wind up with the same situation. You wind up with an inability to judge in between all the different gradients of risk for the public. And we're not, the state is not, and the health department is not in a position to fairly define every level of risk and then assign a person that place in the queue that would get them the medicine right at the fair, fairest slot. That, is a question that would really, really be hard to do. And in the case of this county, when we opened up 75 and older, 
we took the step of trying to look at the higher ages first and then work our way down, which is exactly the question which this lady had raised in people between 16 and 65. So insofar as we had any control to do that, that's exactly what we have done. The state guideline is a very broad one, and when we get down to that one, whether we'll have any capacity to make those kind of discriminations, I do not know. They would be made by the health department, not this body of people. But I certainly sense the fairness of the point she made, and she's correct in that. And it, it may be a thing which the health department can or can do or may not be able to accomplish. But if, if, if you can be assured that we will try to do the best we can to see that fairness happens. So. I mean, I, I mean, I, it, I understand what she was saying. She's being lumped in with a 16-year-old, and she's more likely to be susceptible to it because of her age than a 16-year-old. But she's lumped in with that that age group. To me, it makes sense for us to at least our our, our health department to to consider changing those those ages. So we have. We have phase 1A, phase 1B, phase 1C. We could do phase 1A, phase, one, or phase 2A, phase 2B, and that could be the age breakup instead of lumping those 50 years of age into that one category. Well, I mean, the health department now is making that discrimination, trying to work their way down through the health, the age brackets, and I suppose they probably might do that, but that's not something that we do. Uh, I agree. Be very clear, that's not our job in this world. It's up to the health department to do, but it, certainly from our point of view, that is, would seem fair. Another question which comes up is the morbidity question, because you've got people at 30 that are more at risk than some people at 60 because of health conditions. And making those judgments and her question about whether there were doctor's notes or verification, those are questions which, you know, impose questions about HIPAA, about privacy, about verification. All those are health department questions, not ones that this body of people have any adjudication over. But I think she expressed that in her opening statement was the, I guess, the lack of response she was getting from the health department on her different calls and everything that she had posted on there. So, yeah. right. I mean, being able to get that information out in a transparent manner would probably eliminate some of those questions, or could eliminate I'll, some of those I'll speak questions. on some of this. So first I'll say that the health department has been doing a, a phenomenal job since, um, since the pandemic started. They are, they've been working nonstop between testing and to now administering vaccines and still testing. Um, we've, we give them more funding so they can have more staff, there's more money coming in, but they have got a Herculean task ahead of them. And they are constrained by things that are outside of their control. The, the, at the state level, they make the determination as to when we're going into the different phases. The health department doesn't make that decision. They do try to balance health concerns. They're also, um, you know, they, the state is also requiring a certain amount of the school um, employees to get vaccinated since the schools are reopening. That's another constraint on the health department. And we have a very small amount of vaccines that we get. 
every week, a very small group. Can you expand on that real quick? Because yeah. you have teachers of all ages that are in those ranges. Yeah. Right. You know, you know what I'm saying? And I don't think, you know, people may talk to their neighbor and find out that so-and-so got a vaccine, but they may have been a teacher. And what is it, one-third of what we get has to go to teachers right now? Is that the way it's set up or something like that? A uh, hundred has to go. Everywhere. Just a hundred. It's not a percentage of what we get. Okay. A week. A, a week. week. Right, a week, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so I, I'm sure... I've heard from a lot of people who have reached out to the health department and they've gotten through and they've got their answers. And, I'm, and I, I believe that this lady, when she tells us that um, she left a message, didn't get a call back, that's going to happen. And sometimes these things will fall through the cracks. I know that they are working their best to make sure they're providing as much information. What they have now is, also, is, is a, a surge of calls because people want to know why don't they have their vaccine yet? Because they heard on TV, we're going from 1B to 1C. Um, and they want to know where is their vaccine. And so when you have an interest list, what are up to now? 14, 15,000 on the interest list. And that many people call in, you're not going to get your call back if even a, you know, a fraction of them does. Um, they get overwhelmed with that. The, the vaccines, you know, we're hoping to find out what our allotment is by Thursday, but we don't. And this past week, we didn't find out until Saturday what the allotment would be, yeah. right? And so then the health department's got to say, okay, well, what clinics can we do this week? Um, are we going to have enough second doses? Do we have enough first doses? Well, maybe we can't do the Monday clinic this way. We can only do the, the Friday. They're making a lot of decisions on the fly with, with a lot of constraints. And they're doing a really good job of doing that. But I totally understand people's frustration because you think, why are those vaccines not there yet? She uh, raised a question with, are, are there people who are um, getting the vaccine when they shouldn't? Um, some people are getting their link. It's their turn. And as you know, is somewhat understandable. They're worried about maybe family members or friends or neighbors. And they forward the link that's just for them to sign up to some other people. And then we get a rush of people who then forward that link. We had one clinic where there was 80 people who signed up who should not have signed up for it. So double the amount for that particular clinic that we had. Um, and sometimes these links get forwarded to people outside the county. And so we've had to then call, uh, call them up and tell them, this is not a clinic for you, and have the sheriff's deputies there to work security. So if you get a link, when it is your number, please sign up for yourself and yourself only. Don't send it to anybody else, because that makes it more difficult and puts more stress on the health department. They want nothing in the world than to get their needles in every arm in this county. They are looking forward to jabbing you. They want to cause you pain. So. And, and they're working to do that. Um, so can we ask the governor to change the pyramid to have you know, increments of 10? We could. They're not going to do that. Um, they're not even to, you know, phase two yet. When they get to phase two, maybe they'll revisit that. So now some things that the governor is doing is they're, they're setting up some of these max vaccination sites. There will be one that will be set up on the Eastern Shore. It's not yet. Um, they're going to retail partners, so places like Walmart, Safeway, CVS, different places are also getting vaccines now. There's still a limited amount for the state, so that is, that is taking a little bit away for what could go to the counties. We've asked that our health department get everything and, and not go out to the retail partners. The state's not going to do that, and they're not, they're, their position is not without merit because they are hoping, as everybody is, that we're going to get to a point soon where that supply chain really kicks in and we have a lot more vaccines. And the state wants to make sure they have 
a lot more distribution centers out there so that when, when that, that chain kicks in, they're ready to go. Because think about if they don't do this, and a month from now, instead of getting 70,000 vaccines for the state in a week, they get <laughs> 220,000. And then you wouldn't have enough sites to be able to do it. They want them to be ready to go. So it's, it's sort of the, the preparation, um, and it's sort of painful now for the people here hearing about the other locations don't have it. But it's going to make the process a lot smoother in the future. So I think we got to have a little bit of faith in that. Um, one thing I think we should do as commissioners, we've written to the state and asked for a more of an allocation, but the state is constrained. I think we should write a letter to our congressional delegation, mm -hmm. every, all the congressmen from Maryland, all the senators, not just Congressman Harris mm -hmm. and the senators, mm -hmm. because I, I saw some you know, letter battle writing between them and the governor, everyone wanted to point fingers, but they are the ones who are uniquely positioned to get us more vaccines. The federal government controls the vaccines. They should be fighting for us to get more vaccine and not pointing fingers at what they say is going wrong um, in the state because they're not the boots on the ground. We are, and we need more vaccines for them. So I would propose, I'm making a motion that we send a letter to the congressional delegation to get them on the ball with getting us more vaccines. I'll second that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the one thing I'd like to say to that though, Chris, is I guess my confusion, and, and a lot of the public's confusion is and should be the fact that it is a federal program, we all, we all know that, and, right. and, and to the fact that, like, like the point you just made, you said, okay, in a few weeks we may get 200,000 vaccines, right. they should know that already. I mean, the federal government should be able to allocate a month in advance, you know, they should be telling the state of Maryland, here's what you're going to get these weeks. Um, and I don't know, I just find it hard to believe that information is not available. That, that, and I get it. I mean, I know what we're going through, right. you know, but I just can't believe that the, the federal government who is running this can't say to the individual states, a month ahead, this is what you're going to get. So the states can then prepare, the locals can prepare. I mean, it just makes sense. I, I mean, so. anybody out there should be shaking their head asking that question. Why? Why can't we be a month ahead? And I just want to be clear for people who are watching. I didn't say we were going to get 220,000 doses. <laughs> no, that was just, your, that was just your so. example. Yeah, qualify that. That was your example. But, example. but it could but, be a million. It could but, be but I number. think you're right. If, if the federal government could give better information to the state, they could funnel that down to us. And then we don't have Dr. C running around on Sunday trying to figure out how many arms can they jab. And then... You, you just can't go through a list of 13,000 and prioritize them that when you're getting those. They're, they're doing their best. So, I mean, I think that can be in our letter to the Fed. That they need we need more, a bigger heads up, longer term. You know, we need time to prepare, too. So, I mean, you're open, like you said, you're opening all these mass vaccination sites waiting. What if it's two months? So you opened all these places up, you've shorted the counties, and, you know, we could be getting it in the arms. Because I, I still I just saw the stats. Only 78% of uh, allocated has been... Uh, put in, not mm -hmm. in Queen Anne's County, but statewide. statewide. So there's still 22% yeah, of those County, we sitting it, out gone. there. Yeah, I, I mean, that's what I'm saying. So where are those 22% of those vaccines, where are they laying right now? They could be in people in Queen Anne's County's arms if you got them here, because we're looking for more to put in. And some explanation of that is when those numbers come in, I, I've, we've been doing a lot with keeping up with the state and pushing in the governor's office and getting answers to these things. And I have a, a lot more comfort level than I did a few weeks ago about how they're doing and why they're, what they're doing. Um, and explain to them, when we get these numbers that show how many of the vaccines have actually been administered in the state, there is a lag on that. So the actual number of needles and arms is probably higher. But then on top of that is, so they could report that, let's say, you know, we did 100,000 
we've done 100,000 and we have 150,000 distributed, but they could have clinics lined up for the next day that's already accounted for like another 20,000. So the number that's actually gotten to arms is, is probably significantly higher than what's being reported. But you're right, there are some places where they are sitting on the shelves. That's another reason why they have these other retail locations so they can get those needles out into more people. And, and the system is catching up. I mean, this is, um, this is our first pandemic, so you know, next one will be, <laughs> will be ready to go. I, I think, um, but they're uh, learning as they're going, and, and so I want to say there's always sort of this rush by people to complain that their government isn't working right and, and it's not working. People are learning as they're going, and can improvements be made? Yes, and we're, we're improving at the county level. I think the state is as well. And we're going to be pushed on the federal government to make sure that they're improving as well. Well, if you remember, we're really only just under a year removed from when testing started. And it was, right. how do I get a test? Right. Now it's, how do I get a vaccine? You know, a lot of people were just worried about how to get tested this time last year. So, so I, I think that addresses um, hopefully most of our concerns. If not, email me. I'll be happy to address the rest of uh, the questions that you raised. Um, while I'm at it, I don't want to forget, my parents had their 50th anniversary on Saturday, so happy anniversary to mom and dad. 50 years together, I don't think uh, Mary Beth will put up with Jim no. for that long. So I'm not getting there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as the schools are, are, kids are going back in, out of the virtual environment and some of them into the actual classroom, I think one of the greatest things in this county as a parent who had kids in the school system here is there was always a great partnership between the parents and the teachers. And, um, you know, COVID has raised a lot of tensions and everybody has their positions on when we should return to school or not return to school. And, and I think a lot of, you know, very good points raised on different sides of that. I'm hoping that we all remember that the goal here is the students and making sure the kids are being educated. Um, and so what, what helps with that is not undermining either the parents' role or the teacher's role in this. So parents, you're, you know, your, your kids are going to listen. If you're bashing the teachers, they're going to think it's okay. And teachers, if they hear you complaining about the parents, they're going to hear that too. Um, and I understand tensions are high and everybody has strong opinions, but let's remember the kids and the pillar of respect that we heard today and try to move forward on that. That's just out of curiosity, I hate to interrupt you, but did, did you guys get any conversation today about a possible reset? Meaning that, you know, these kids are going to be out of school for over a year trying this virtual. And my understanding is the test stores are not coming back where they need to be. Is so, there any, any discussion to... So there's a, there's a program they've actually already introduced. Um, it's called um, recover, Recovery Credits. Yeah. So students who failed last semester, a course last semester, um, they can go through a seven module or eight module, um, what would you call it, a, a, a project. In other words, they can take that, that course again, that semester's course again, in a seven-module process, but and they have till the end of the school year to complete it. Right, but they're, again, they're doing that virtual, right? Um, yes. So my, I guess to that point, it, I don't know, I, to me it almost seems like, is it better to just say, look, it coming this fall, if, if, you, if, if last September you were in seventh grade, this September you're still in seventh grade. I mean, a reset, I think we're shortchanging these kids, and I think that all of the modules and all of the summers and everything else, I don't think it's going to help. I, I, you know, that's my personal opinion, but I would hope that, you know, if, if people are sincere about education, 
you know, they will take a look at that because I mean I don't know where where it hurts. I don't know what you know if if the entire state is saying we're just going to repeat a grade because of COVID because we don't want to shortchange our kids. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't, I don't see. You know, same amount of kids are in school, same amount of, in the same grade. They're all moving. You know, you might have a little bit of a bump up at, at kindergarten. You know, that might be one of those swelled years. But I, I don't know. I just might. But they, I mean, they have standardized tests, Jim. That's that's what I'm. I, yeah. I, I, I'm in agreement with See, that's the thing. They but they, they, but they have them. So if you're, it's so so if you're a student, a seventh grade student, or a fifth grade student, whatever, and or ninth, whenever the standardized test, if you pass out of that test, why should you be held back? Right. I, you know, they, they have, I think they it have goes back programs. to like it should be. It's performance. You move on because you're performing at the level you need to perform at. But I don't think they're given the same test as they are when, when they were in school. No, I don't think they are. But they, yeah. they do have plans for, um, I, I guess they call them sort of gap plans, to help right. students who, who are there is high. a gap to help them right. get up. Some students, I, I've talked to some parents who their kids are actually doing better because hmm. they were boys who were distracted when they were in class, and now they're, they're home, they're doing yeah. better. Um, some other kids, I think, are just natural students that, whether it's virtual or not, they're gonna do great. Right. Many have fallen behind. They are putting together programs that are you know, obviously acutely aware of this. Um, I don't envy anybody who is in the education field for the next couple of years, because no, they, they have I, got a huge task ahead yeah. of them, but I, I know that they're gonna do it, and the kids will come out okay. I think that question of whether you ought to run a grade twice would be so wrenching, because it would stop colleges for a year, right. because they didn't graduate. Parents, the kids wouldn't leave home, they're all gonna love you or hate you. I mean, it really is a very... Oh, I'm not enacting it. I'm just asking if they're, if they're talking about it. I mean, yeah. I, you know, yeah, I, no, I don't, my kids are all out of school, so, yeah. I, you know, but I still think, you know, you hear about what goes on. You know, as far as colleges, they'll always fill the colleges. Yeah. When they turn away thousands and thousands, they'll fill them. Yeah. Matter of fact, in Maryland, you might actually be able to get into Maryland now. For, yeah, right. <laughs> for living here. So, you? so, 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 my daughter Reagan got accepted to Maryland. To, Congratulations! Really? Yeah, but um, good for you. Maybe that's just because. There was room. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you have just no. She has. She has. Her. She has your mother's brains. <laughs> I mean, your 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 wife's not your mother's. Your wife's <laughs> uh, and your mother's. Okay. With that, <laughs> if there is a, I'll make a motion to adjourn, and I'll second that. All right. All in favor? Aye. 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 Let's go. Thank you.